Take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, we're going to explore an incredibly familiar passage of Scripture to us this morning. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. I'll read through verse 37. This is, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Again, a familiar passage of Scripture for us. Uh, Probably the most famous, most popular, most well-known parables. Um, Maybe with the exception of the prodigal son, this is one that comes up for us quite a bit. Before we get going, uh, I want to uh, let you know that uh, in just six short weeks, on October 4th of 2020, Buffalo City Church is going to turn five. Um, we are excited about uh, excited about that, um, and uh, and so would you do me a favor and circle that day on your calendar, October fourth, twenty twenty. We're gonna worship together. We're gonna uh, spend time considering what God has done and how God has been faithful to us as a as a church uh, over the last five years. And then in the afternoon, we're gonna have a celebration out in the parking lot. We have like a fall festival. It's gonna be a, a great day. Um, and so I uh, hope that you can join us. Again, I want to get that date in front of you, October 4th, 2020. Uh, our first congregational worship was October 4th, 2015. Um, and so we're actually celebrating on the day, which is, is exciting. Again, God has been faithful to us over these last five years, and we want to celebrate, celebrate together on that, on that day. Good, okay, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, and I'll read again through verse verse 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Again, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture for us. The parable of the Good Samaritan stands uh, as, a, as an example to us. And we oftentimes think and talk about people when they are kind to others as Good Samaritans. We may refer to them in that way. 
But there's a danger when we get to a text like this, we may be tempted to sort of gloss over it because we know it so well, because it is just kind of even ingrained in our culture. And when someone calls someone a good Samaritan, we think to ourselves, oh, that's nice. That's a good, that's a good thing. But when we gloss, gloss over familiar passages like this, uh, it reveals a couple things in us. First, it, it reveals pride in us. Because when we come to a text like this, and we are so familiar with it, we think to ourselves, I get this. I understand what's being said here. I understand what Jesus is communicating. But friends, we need to, when we get to a passage like this, understand that God's word is like food for us. It's like spiritual food and drink. And no matter how many times you read, study, meditate, or hear a sermon on a particular passage of Scripture, it will always provide you with spiritual nourishment. I don't know if you're a breakfast eater, but, but Rebecca and I eat the same breakfast every, every morning. Um, it's delicious. And uh, it's like a piece of bread with uh, some tomato and avocado on it and, and, a, and an egg. It's really good. And some cheese too, yeah. It's delicious. And she makes that every morning for us. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But just because I ate the same thing this morning that I ate yesterday doesn't say, I don't say this isn't giving me as much nourishment because I ate the same thing. Similarly, when we approach a, similar, uh, a familiar text in Scripture, we must acknowledge that God will provide us with spiritual nourishment even when we are familiar with it. The second thing that this sort of reveals in us is the trap that we fall into as 21st century believers, that when we approach the Bible, it's just information for us. It's just information for us. The Bible is not primarily information transfer. The Bible is, is about formation. It's about spiritual formation. It's about taking us and molding us into the image of Jesus. And since we live in this information age, we're bent towards information. And so we think, well, that, this is a nice fact, or this is a nice historical context that we come to. But the reality is, when we come to the Bible, we must, we must not be quick to think approaching a text like the parable of the Good Samaritan is just review for us. Rather, we need to ask questions of the text. Our pride says, I know all of this. But a statement leaves a text of Scripture, a Sunday morning sermon, our personal Bible reading at, at information transfer only. When without question, uh, the sinful flesh that's still part of your reality and part of mine needs to be exposed. And formation, not just information, needs to happen. We, friends, need to be supernaturally transformed by the renewing of our mind, and that comes through through God's word. And so when we get to a familiar passage like the Good Samaritan, don't gloss over it because in reality, it's revealing much about us when we do. So would you consider the parable with me? And, and we've spent the summer considering parables overall. And Matthew and Mark have uh, parables, but when we get to Luke, the, the parables that Luke shares with us always have these helpful lead-ins. We get this helpful interaction that's occurring uh, at the beginning of 
most of the, the parables that Luke communicates. And so, in this one, and no exception, verses 25 through 29, we get a great lead-in and a good understanding of what's being discussed as we get to verse 30 and the meat of the parable itself. So if you look in verse 25, we see immediately that a lawyer stands up and puts Jesus to the test. And he asks him this question. He says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you have an image of a lawyer because I know you've all watched endless hours of law and order that this, that was a joke. Maybe you have, I don't know. I'm not ripping on you. Go, go for it. The, the, this lawyer is not what law and order looks like. This is different. Israel was under Roman occupation, and, and these lawyers weren't going to court in the way that we would think about it. The modern-day justice system just doesn't exist. And so this lawyer is actually an expert in the Jewish law. Actually an expert in the Jewish law. He has the authority to stand up and to question a teacher or rabbi, like Jesus in this case. He has the authority to stand up and question him and question the teacher's understanding of the law. And so the question he asks is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Lawyers in this time would have considered uh, or or claimed that keeping uh, the law was tied to life and to prosperity. And some would even have interpreted that to mean eternal life. Not just not just life in the here and now, but eternal life. And this lawyer uh, is in that camp. He says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus quickly turns it around and just asks him a question. Again, this is a rabbinical practice. He would look back at the person who asked him the question and ask a question in return. And so Jesus says, or gives, or, uh, asks him a specific question. He says, how do you read the law? What is the law? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And uh, the lawyer knows his stuff, and so he cites two Old Testament passages that are incredibly important. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so Jesus affirms the lawyer's response. He says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. But what's funny about this interaction is that he actually presses further. And and Luke gives us the motivation. He gives us the motivation behind his pressing. In verse 29, Luke writes, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The question that the lawyer is actually asking here is, how far do I have to go in loving others to fulfill the law? How far do I actually have to go? The standard answer would be to love your fellow Israelite, to love the people like you. Love the people who look like you and talk like you and think like you and share a similar heritage to you. Love those people and you will be 
the one who keeps the law. But this is where things get different. Where Jesus flips the script. Jesus doesn't stick with a standard answer here. Rather, he launches into this parable in verse 30 that we know so well. And so as we explore verses 30 through 37, consider two things with me. Two things here that come as a result of what Jesus communicates. First thing is this. Love is of first importance. That's a simple sentence and one that you will probably affirm in the immediate. The second thing is mercy doesn't require a resume. So let's begin with love is of first importance. This is a primary theme in this parable. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously treacherous. Lots of rocks, lots of places for some muggers or some robbers to hide. And so far, we're tracking with Jesus. We've been thinking to ourselves, yeah, that's a dangerous road. Of course he got mugged. And note also that the man was stripped and beaten. He was left half dead, the text says. And it would become immediately difficult for a man who was stripped of his clothes and beaten to a pulp. It would be immediately difficult for, uh, for anyone to identify this man's religion or ethnicity. And then we meet two other men in verses 31 and 32. A priest and a Levite. Both men see this guy beaten up on the side of the road. And both men pass over on the other side. Now, I need to point this out. Jesus' hearers would not be surprised by this action. We think to ourselves immediately, we look at this and we're like, what a, what a bunch of jerks. Why, why didn't they stop and help this guy out? That's not what Jesus' hearers would have thought. Well, well why? The, the man is half dead, the text says. And so if we put ourselves in the position of someone like a priest, this man's not dead, but he's half dead, and that's a pretty drastic state to be in. It's a pretty drastic state to be in. Do you remember like in The Princess Bride, where in the pit of despair, what, have you guys seen that movie? Okay, good, thank you. Uh, the pit of despair, Wesley in the machine thing, he appears to be dead, and his friends think he's dead. But when they go to Miracle Max, Miracle Max is like, he's not all dead. He's just mostly dead. You know what I'm talking about, right? This man looks to be mostly dead. And in ancient Israel, for a priest to come in contact with a dead person or a corpse would have resulted in him being unable to do his job for a week, because he would have had to go through this ritualistic purification process. Numbers uh, 19, 11 through 13 outlines the details of that purification process. Whoever touches the dead body of, a, of any person shall be unclean for several days. He shall cleanse himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, 
defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person should be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. So if the priest, if unclean, would not have been able to go into the temple, and if he would have gone into the temple, uh, things, would have, things would have been bad for the, for the Israelites. And the Levite, uh, who is part of the priestly class of people, would have also wished to avoid similar uncleanliness. So rather than take the risk of, of having be, to be put on the shelf for their work for, for seven days, both men just simply pass by the other side of the road. They keep their distance and they don't risk it. Now, in this, we learn something about love. These guys were important. And again, their job was in jeopardy, at least for a week, if they came in contact with this man. And we learn something about love, though. Jesus wants us to see something that's true here about love. That love for neighbor requires sacrifice. To love your neighbor means putting yourself in a position where there is risk involved. For the priest and Levite, it would have meant seven days of this ritual purification process in order to get back to life as normal. They didn't know that the man was, if the man was dead or not, but it turned out that he was. If it did turn out that he was, they would have experienced dramatic inconvenience. And so it seems that it would be easy to justify just passing on the other side of the road. The priest had an important job to do, and so did the Levite. He didn't want to jeopardize that. He wanted to play it safe. But Jesus says no matter how vital someone's job is, no matter how important, no matter what level of responsibility one might have, lovelessness and lack of compassion are not excusable. And friends, here we see something just an incredible portrait of Jesus' incredible compassion and love for us in the simple act of the incarnation. When Jesus left the comforts of heaven, when he took on flesh and came into our, our, our cre- created state, he did so out of love. Jesus, who had existed in eternity past in perfect relationship to God the Father and God the Spirit, took on human flesh, the Creator dwelling amongst His creatures. He left the comforts of heaven. He did so out of love. You, you have an important job if you're working or you're living in this world. Your job is important. Your career your children, all of these things are important. Just like the priest and Levite, you have responsibilities and tasks that are appointed to you. Friends, Jesus' job is infinitely more important. That passage that we read is a call to worship, Hebrews chapter 1. In verse 3, it says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's not in my job description and it's not in your job description either. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus came to earth and demonstrated love and compassion. And not one molecule fell out of place. 
He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not one star gave off less light. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not one hair on anyone's head moved improperly. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Jesus went to the cross for us. He took the sin of the world unto himself. God's wrath poured out on him. Not at all a comfortable or sanitized scene. And unlike the priest and the Levite who are unwilling to risk discomfort and inconvenience, Jesus willingly put himself in a place where he sacrificially gave up his comfort and convenience at the cost of even his own life. This is love. It's radical. It's sacrificial. Love that costs something. The priest and the Levite indicate that the cost would be too high to show compassion. And so they pass by on the other side of the road. And this brings us then to the the second point this morning. Mercy doesn't require a resume. Mercy doesn't require a resume. When I mean a resume, I mean that sheet of paper that lists your qualifications, your education, your past work experience, all the community service that you've done. And how that applies here, what that means is when we meet the Samaritan in verse 33, we learn some things about him. As he journeyed, he came to where he, the beaten, robbed, half-dead man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The, the thing that is incredible about what Jesus does here is that to use the Samaritan as the hero of this story is incredibly offensive. It's incredibly offensive. We live in a world where everyone is always offended by everything. This takes the cake. This is the most offensive thing that Jesus could have done in this story. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They hated each other. Some Jews went so far as to believe that Samaritans were created exclusively to fuel the fires of hell. That's what these people believed about Samaritans. That is serious hate. Samaritans were often referred to as and considered as half-Jews. There were this people who were formed, this people group that were formed out of uh, uh, when Assyria came and took captive the northern kingdom, and then the king of Assyria sent other people groups into this area, which is called Samaria, and they intermarried with the Jewish remnant population. And the result was this group of people who knew the Hebrew scriptures, but, but they also practiced idolatry. And so the Jews would refer them as half-breeds or those who synchronized their religions together and just made a mess of things, both ethnically and religiously. That's what the Jews thought and that's what they believed. And again, they, they would go as far to say that the Jews, the Jews would go as far to say that the Samaritans were created by God to fuel the fires of hell. 
So if you remember back to the beginning and the setup of this parable, the question that the lawyer asks at the outset is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We meet this Samaritan. The lawyer would not believe in any way that the Samaritan could inherit eternal life. But Jesus is breaking down that barrier. Salvation that can only come through Jesus is not limited to the Jewish population. And Jesus is giving us a small glimpse of that by making the hero of the parable a Samaritan. The lawyer at the end of the parable who is required to answer the question that Jesus poses in verse 36. Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer doesn't say the Samaritan. He won't even say the word. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. The Samaritan, in a dramatic twist, fulfills the law to love one's neighbor in the parable. That is a scandal. This is a scandal. And so Jesus says that mercy doesn't require a resume. The half-dead man didn't need to check all of the boxes to have the Samaritan show him mercy. He didn't need to submit an application. The Samaritan just acted compassionately. He showed the half-dead man mercy despite all of the religious and ethnic barriers that existed. The Samaritan wasn't duty-driven like the priest and the Levite. He was driven by compassion. He was driven by mercy. The religious and ethnic barriers between the Samaritan and the half-dead man weren't great enough to override the mercy. The Samaritan stops, and at great cost to himself, he bandages wounds, he finds lodging, he pays for the whole thing. Friends, this is good news for us. There are no requirements for us to meet before Jesus comes to us. Because as much as we would like to put ourselves in the position of the good Samaritan and think of ourselves as good people who meet all of the requirements for Jesus to come to us, the reality is that we are much more like the beaten up, broken, bloodied, robbed, half-dead man on the side of the road than we are like the good Samaritan. And so there are no requirements for us to meet before Jesus comes to us. The mercy that comes to us through the cross of Christ doesn't make demands. Not a particular ethnicity, not a particular political persuasion, not a certain view on what people should and shouldn't do during a global pandemic. The mercy that comes to us through the cross of Christ comes to us where we are. We're not required to clean up a bit before that mercy comes to us. We don't have to be a bit better than the next guy. We don't need to earn it. It comes to us freely. The mercy that comes to us through the cross of Christ comes to us as beat up, dead, broken sinners, unable to help ourselves and unable to make our situation better. The mercy Christ shows us doesn't require us to submit a resume. So what should we walk away with from this parable this morning? 
What should we consider more deeply this week? Three things. The first is related to what we just saw. Consider that Jesus is the, is the greatest example of compassion that we have. Consider that Jesus is the greatest example of compassion that we have. Again, we, we probably don't want to admit it. It's going to take everything inside of us to admit that we were on the side of the road left for dead. Sin in the world promises you a lot of things, but they leave you devastated if we chase after those things. And when sin in the world leave us bloodied, robbed, and half dead, by appealing to our sinful flesh over and over again, and in a trail of wake and destruction that becomes our lives. And I'm not, I'm not talking about what it looks like on the outside. I'm talking about what's going on inside of your heart. Because the trail of wake and destruction can easily have a facade over the top of it. It can easily be painted over through a family that looks like it has it all together. Or a beautiful house on the, on the corner. This is not what we're talking about. Sin will leave you bloodied, robbed, and half dead on the side of the road. As it tears you to shreds in your innermost being. Jesus comes to us there. The Holy One of Israel who would be rejected by his own people. Like the Samaritan in the parable, Jesus was written off as the one who could make things right. They said, this guy didn't come to to restore the kingdom to Israel. Let's put him on a cross. He blasphemes. But Jesus comes to us in our state of desperation. Even when we were among the multitude that said, crucify him. He comes to us in that place and binds up our wounds. It's by his wounds that we are healed. And he goes and he makes a place for us. Jesus gave his life in order that we might live. No no forms to fill out. No questions asked. No good deeds checklist for us to complete. No background check no ethnic advantages, no ideological subscriptions. Jesus gave his life in order that we might live. The second thing to consider more deeply this week is that through Christ's sacrifice, and only through Christ's sacrifice, are we free to love our neighbor by demonstrating mercy. You can try outside of Christ. You can try But it's only through Christ's sacrifice that we are free from the sin that causes us to think only about ourselves and only about our interests. It's only through Christ's sacrifice that we are free to love our neighbor by demonstrating mercy. Because through Christ's sacrifice, we are joined with Christ. We can now freely and we can boldly demonstrate mercy. The question is, if that becomes the source of our compassion 
and of our mercy. If that becomes the source of those things, what do we have to lose? Christ is sufficient, we say, but then we withhold. Friends, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so you can pour yourself out. The Samaritan shows us that there is a cost associated with love and mercy and compassion. It costs the time to stop. It's a mess. Blood and dirt. It costs us energy to get the man to the inn. And it comes with a financial cost. For the Samaritan, it was two days wages and a future bill to pay. But the strength is found in the fact that God is our provider. We should risk all that God has given to us to show mercy to those who are beaten up and broken and bloodied and half dead. We can risk that boldly and courageously because God is our provider. And in order to show mercy like the Samaritan, we must be in Christ and we must then through that reality believe that our Heavenly Father sees what we need and generously provides it. For our greatest need, He sent His Son. We needed to be redeemed and set free from sin. And for that, God sent Jesus. And we wring our hands about little things when God has not withheld the greatest thing. Last thing this morning. As those who are in Christ, as those who are set free from sin and can show compassion and mercy, the direct question becomes, who do you know who is in need of compassion? And are your eyes open to it? Friends, if you walk out of here this morning and walk, you're not going to see a beaten up person on the side of the road, probably. This may have been a common thing on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's not a common thing on our streets. And when cars are pulled over on the interstate, roadside assistance is always already coming, and or AAA has been called. We have systems for these sorts of things. So what does this actually look like for us? Let me give you a few thoughts. These are examples. I'm not giving you an exhaustive list. They're just examples. In our world, it could be speaking into a struggling marriage with someone we know in our community group. It could be steering a coworker with a substance abuse problem towards a recovery or program or treatment. It could be advocating for the unborn child of a teenage woman who is now pregnant with either her or with, your, with her parents. It could be fostering or adopting one of the 1,500 kids in the foster care system in North Dakota. It could be caring for a friend who is struggling with Anxiety due to everything that's going on in the world right now. And just like Jesus enters into our messy and broken world, sacrificing the comfort of heaven, 
So we need to be ready and willing to sacrifice our comforts to enter into the lives of men and women who need mercy shown to them. Friends, it's hard. It's not easy. Don't pretend like it's easy. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's easy. I'm not going to tell you that it's comfortable. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be gross. It's going to feel weird. And yet we're called. Knowing people in your community group well enough to speak into a struggling marriage takes investment of time and energy. Gaining a tr- the trust of a coworker with a substance abuse problem that will be required before you can help him or her get treatment, that takes an investment of time and energy. Helping your neighbor to see the value of an unborn child is going to require that they know that you're not just chasing a political agenda. That requires time and energy. Fostering or adopting a child, welcoming a child into your home who's been cast aside, who's lost in the system, that's going to take time, it's going to take energy. Caring for a friend or who's struggling with anxiety is going to require that you, they know that you care. And it's going to require that you bite your tongue over all of the opinions that you've formed about what's going on in the world. This takes time. And it takes energy. It comes at a cost. But you are free to do these things. Friends, you are free to do these things in Christ Jesus because he has freed you to love through demonstrations of compassion and mercy. Open your eyes. See the hurt. See the damage and see that Christ is the only solution. Friends, let's be known for our compassion and our mercy that doesn't require men and women to meet our standards before we offer it. But it but draws more deeply on the source of satisfaction Jesus Christ. Friends, so see Christ Jesus this morning, rejected by his own, pouring himself out for sinners, binding up their wounds, making a place for them. And then hear the call, you go and do likewise. Let's pray.